how busy we are does get in the way, but you need to purposefully carve out time for FaceTime. It pays dividends and it can't just be for a short period of time because you lose the genuine purpose of it. They need to feel it. Welcome to the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast, where IT and digital leaders from around the world talk about their careers, their inspiration, and their vision for the future of digital business. I'm your host, David Wright. The world of digital business is evolving faster than ever, and I want this to be a place where digital business champions create a village to band together and help each other navigate the ever-changing terrain. Disruptive Innovators features conversations with CIOs and digital leaders from around the world, diving into their personal backstory, career, their current role, trends they've been seeing, and their vision for the future, personally, professionally, and otherwise. This podcast is made for people who are seeing how quickly the digital business landscape is evolving. Those who recognize that it takes a village of trusted advisors to navigate this ever-changing terrain. People who enjoy listening to high-level discussions surrounding what it means to be a leader, real-world examples of challenges faced, and industry-specific strategies leveraged to create exceptional business outcomes. This episode is brought to you by Disruptive Innovations, a leading tech consulting firm that helps enterprise organizations with their IT strategy, process optimization, and workflow improvement. Contact them and find out more at disruptiveinnovations.net. Good afternoon, everyone. David Wright here, and I'm your host of the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast. And this afternoon, I'm lucky enough to be joined by Anthony Darden. Anthony, how are you? I'm well. How are you doing, sir? Doing all right. Thank you. Anthony, for anyone who doesn't know, tell our listeners a little bit about your current role. Sure. So I'm Vice President IT for Protective Industries. We're global manufacturer based out of Buffalo, New York, but we have 12 locations around the globe. We're serving markets of core industrial, aerospace, medical, oil and gas, so pretty diverse portfolio. Been with the company going on 10 years. In fact, December 4th will be my 10-year anniversary. Very cool. So I look forward to learning a little bit more about your personal backstory, but before we get into that, what's one piece of actionable advice you'll look to give our listeners today? Well, I mean, there's a lot of trends that we're seeing, especially when it, with respect to cloud adoption and the intense focus on security and trying to avoid being that next headline with ransomware. We're not seeing it slow down. You tend to hear in the media about the large events, you know, when you have your, your large caps with the breaches, but what you see Below that and across the globe is that number is not slowing down. Those attacks are intensifying. So I just want to be mindful of that and make sure we're investing in those protections. Yeah, 100%. So Anthony, let's start out with your past. So where did you start out and how did you find yourself leading this global organization? How did you get to where you are today? Well, I mean, this started in fifth grade. My science teacher had an Apple IIe and introduced the basic programming language to the class. And man, I got sucked in right away. I knew at 10 years old, this is what I want to want to be in life. So there went the fireman and the policeman aspiration. And I know I wanted to be a geek. And that stayed with me through college and led up to what started out as a development career. I was a coder. 
shortly after I landed my job with that first career, I was in an independent food distribution service. I took the development interest a step further and looked for ways to help equip their sales team out in the field with taking orders. So this goes back to 98. The internet was still, I would say, in its infancy when it comes to being a business tool, not just a means of sending email and viewing information online. So I cherry-picked some of my colleagues to help uh, brainstorm what we could do on the IT side and created a proof of concept and pitched it to my ownership team there. And they did not take well to it or they weren't that receptive. I'm this 23-year-old and it's asking a lot to, at least in retrospect, to put their cards on equipping a sales team in the business on a proof of concept that I did. So I said, okay. And what it did was inspired me to purchase my own development license, my own tools, my own equipment. And I said, all right, I'm going to take the next year and try and make something of this, give a little more meat on the bone. And it just so happened that during that one year span, the company they were currently using and relying on for this type of functionality, order entry, menu management, there was a couple of things that this tool did, went out of business. So it became an opportunity to, after that one year of kind of digging in more, to pitch this solution again. And they were receptive at that time. So that kind of launched me ahead as to not just being a developer, but being a collaborator and getting to see other parts of the business and kind of get me out of that IT shell. And so after 10 years of doing that, it was time to pass the reins and I wanted to get more into the business side of the IT career. And this opportunity came along where I'm at today. And what do you know, it's almost 10 years since that time as well. It's awesome. Some of them, I remember the old, I started out with like the very, the original compact Presarios. Those were one of my first uh, yeah, yeah. devices. Well, in, in fact, it, so when I was telling my story about the system I was trying to create, they were using compact concertos. It was yeah. one of the early tablet designs. So it's running Windows 3.1. I mean, it was like the thickness <laughs> of a Big Mac. It got, you could cook an egg on it after using it for, you know, 10 minutes. But it was cool because everything was green screen back then. And I was just a COBOL guy. And so what, they flew me out to San Diego on a conference for the vendor we were using for COBOL. And they showed off this gooey, this Windows-based COBOL development kit, which you just never heard of that at the time. And man, that really got me thinking. And then there was this quarter million dollar investment on in these compact concertos. And anyway, the pieces started to come together. It's just funny how things come about, you know? Yeah, for sure. So along that journey, what's one of the most important things that you've learned either personally or professionally? And what was life like before learning it and after learning it? Well, as traction was had on this idea, we had to build out the team. Um, and I'm, I was very green. In fact, the first hire that came on was almost twice my age. And the hard lesson I learned was to be more of a collaborator because this was my baby, right? And this was, so at the time I wasn't thinking, I wasn't in group think mode. And let me divert quick and just say, okay, how I look at myself now, I would say that I'm not in the IT business. I would say I'm in the people business that happened to do IT. 
But the point of it is to emphasize just how important that collaboration and teamwork is. But now if I rewind back again, this new hire I had, she would ask a question that involved another department. And rather than introducing her to that department and just having that type of approach, I would always get up and go over there and I'd bring her the answer. And I remember her at one point going, you know, I can just go talk to these people and kind of the light bulb went off and, and I'm like, okay, this is time to mature here. So beyond the collaboration teamwork, the other important lesson I learned was empathy. And as we introduce new systems, not only in that role, in my current role, user adoption and getting that buy-in is just critical. And otherwise, success is hard to find. Not yeah. saying you can't get there, but it's a challenge. So you just want to be able to put yourselves in folks' shoes and understand their pain points, what they like, what they don't like in terms of the system work that you're taking on. I find it to be a key success factor. A hundred percent. I feel like that's such great advice and can be so often overlooked. Empathy and really and communication, over communication with your stakeholders and with your team members is so crucial to the success of it. Because you could think a project, or rather, I can think a project goes so well, you know, everything yeah. is implemented flawlessly. But if my counterparts aren't leveraging the solution or don't know how to leverage the solution, or they don't feel heard or they feel put on, like that organizational change management and really spending the time we've found on the front end really to understand their vision and communicating how this solution will ultimately make their life easier. Then, like you said, garnering the feedback as we're going through it and then creating those feedback loops until they're using the solution successfully, all just so crucial. Otherwise, what's the point really? Yeah. And you have to be comfortable with the uncomfortable because the favorite part of the project or it's come to be my favorite part of the project is the postmortem. That's kind of a grim phrase to put, but it's looking back and saying, okay, where did I fall down? Where did we fall down? Who helped pick us up? How do we do better on that next project? Because there always will be that next project. So embracing your failures, I think, is critical for your own personal growth and just makes you a better, whether it's a manager, a developer, whatever your career is or that career path is going, you want to, you know. Yeah, that's actually a great lead into my next question, which is going to be over the course of your career, what was a failure that sticks out in your mind, a project or something that happened as something that you learned a ton from? Obviously, we all have plenty of them, but is there one that sticks out in your mind as like, oh yeah, that was a really good lesson? Well, I mean, that's a good question. I There's been a few. I remember when, and it kind of ties back to what I was saying earlier about that collaboration. And we have two ears and one mouth for a reason, right? So you want to be listening to the team you're working with. But it was a, it was a warehouse management system. This was me kind of falling in love with the technology, not necessarily the problem we're trying to solve here. Mm. Um, but it was with picking, the picking of orders. And using technology, you, you, know, you can have a handheld device and, and scan barcodes and pick. But the part I fell in love with was the voice picking. So you have folks that have a headset and you're, they're speaking commands into that headset to facilitate how they pick an order. And the theory is you have free hands, you're speaking these commands, fluid, speak naturally. This is going to be great until it was 
everything but that. And I should have walked away from it, but I felt like I was pot committed in terms mm. of spend and all this equipment that was proprietary to this, to, to this solution. That's another lesson. Anymore, if I'm going to buy into a solution, I make sure it's agnostic to the service or to that ecosystem. So I'm kind of giving you a two for one here. But it was pretty clear that the users hated the voice pick. Didn't matter how cool or energetic I felt it could be. In practice, it was a failure. And I just refused to accept it. It was too late. Yeah, no, it's a great lesson. And the two for it, which I appreciate. So I want to talk a little bit more about your current role. Before we get into that, favorite book or blog or literary piece either that you're reading now or all time? You can go either dealer's choice. Steve Jobs, his book was by Walter Isaacson. Steve Jobs by Walter Isaacson. That's my favorite read. Steve Jobs, brilliant mind, of course, but wow, the complexity of him and the baggage he had. And I don't know how anybody could work for the guy, truthfully. And I really appreciated because I've seen the documentaries on Steve Jobs. Of course, we're all familiar with the Apple ecosystem. I mean, he's a god among gods. This read really got right back to him being in high school all the way through to his death. It was just a nice raw look. And he got a chance to see him with the guardrails down and really get to understand more about Steve Jobs, the person, not this creative genius. The book gives you all the creative genius tidbits you can want, but this was by far, I think, the best read and, and representation of Steve Jobs. Yeah, I'm going to have to check it out. I still haven't seen it or read it rather, and multiple people have recommended it. I'm going to have to check that out. This is the way I build my book list. So, yeah, good. All right. So let's talk a little bit about your current role. So you were working for CA Plug, and then tell me a little bit about your vision for CA Plugs, and then how it's transitioned as you've been grown into the mother brand, if you will. Yeah. So Cat Plugs was. Yeah, it's okay. I always tell them, I'm like, guys, we need another P in that name. Just make life way easier. (laughs) (laughs) In fact, when I told my wife when I was interviewing the job, I'm like, yeah, there's this California plugs. I don't know what they do, but we're going to, yeah, that was way off. So, but Cat Plugs is a business unit under the Protective Industries umbrella. Protective Industries is the global organization, if you will. Right. So there's several business units underneath, but sorry, do you want to talk about like the role or the vision or? Yeah. Tell me a little bit about your vision for the organization. Okay. So when I joined the organization, they were heavily on-prem, lots of physical servers. They were still using, they weren't even using fiber for internet. And so I came in excited about where this company could potentially go from a system standpoint. And I was looking forward to focusing on strategic initiatives and being a partner to that business. But there was a lot of low-hanging fruit. I felt like the core was broke, the foundation. It was time to lay new bricks. So the first two years of my engagement there was essentially a rip and replace of their infrastructure. And I say two years because you still have a business to run. There's still legacy things you have to support. So it does take time, right? Of course. But in my vision for the organization, if you think about how we're spread out now across the globe, It is having a standard suite of products that can serve all regions. Now, it's a bit aspirational because different regions have very specific needs. Different Mm. production processes we have may require very specific systems to support. 
But in general, we can agree around cloud architecture. We're an Office 365 company, so that Microsoft stack is very appealing. There's a CRM solution that we all can use, CRM and ERP. And so I wanted to have some uniformity around that because not only does it help us on the support side from an IT, there is that cross-collaboration benefits that come out of it. If someone in Europe is stuck and not sure how to get through a particular process, well, there's someone in Canada who may have the same problem and you kind of have that cross-pollination. So I don't look at it so much as simplicity on the IT side, simplicity with air quotes, but it's that business cohesive, that glue that I feel that this helps uh, lay out. But also advancements in cloud architecture. I feel like there's a shift from that CapEx model to more OpEx. We're paying out in subscription fees more than necessarily depreciation on our local server rooms. And it's a paradigm shift for us. We do have folks that are used to being on a particular version and not having these scheduled downtimes, or if the internet goes down, now I can't access a system. So it does introduce new sets of challenges. And in part, I think our vendors are helping push us there anyway, because there are some that just simply say, look, here's the solution. It's a cloud offering. What do you say? Because there is no other option for them. So okay. they do help in that decision-making in that sense. But um, And we're in the middle of that journey. It's still, I would say, from what I want to realize, we're probably halfway there. Sure. What are some of the biggest challenges that you're facing along the way, either in IT or even as a business as a whole? Good question. So with IT, like I said, it does... Your reliance on that connection to the outside world becomes paramount. And we have some locations where, look, we have one internet connection option, just one, and it's cable. And, you know, that comes with 100 meg down and, you know, half a meg up. You know, it's usually it's something skewed like that because they don't have that business class offering. We have those locations, but... I do see it as short term because more and more, uh, I do see multiple fiber carriers in our markets that we can take advantage of. But that is the challenge. You want to make sure you strengthen and add redundancies to that outside connection because your business will live or die by that. Now, the other challenge, though, opportunity kind of ties to COVID. It's partly thankful that we've been doing this cloud transition because Whether I'm in the four walls of my business or in the four walls of my home office, I'm still connecting to the same system. So the portability of IT and its employees, and I would say for employees in general, I feel like is a trend that's here to stay. And the last thing I would say is there is the false premise that cloud is cheaper. I'll never forget an email my CEO sent me, and it was just a Google search and it said, cloud storage. $5 a terabyte. And I'm like, oh God, you know. And so I inspired me to write a white paper as to what the real cost of cloud is. And it was just a good dialogue. And and he's very supportive. He understands, but I was like, oh shit. Cause that's where you'll see. I don't think he's alone in in that thought of, well, if we just go to the cloud, it's going to be cheaper than all this equipment they can see in a server room. And the reality is it's not. And in some cases can be a lot more expensive. Yeah, it really depends. Yeah, that's a false assumption. We encounter that sometimes as well. How about some of the best practices you might share with our listeners that you and your team follow on a, on a regular basis? 
Well, I think now, so best practices in terms of. It could either be, you know, the blocking and tackling or more of a leadership, really just whatever you think would resonate with our listeners. So I do think having local resources to support IT is important. I'm not a fan of the offshoring model. Mm. I do think there is a place for it. I get the theory. They're doing their work while you sleep. And then while you're awake, reviewing their work and teeing up the next batch. But even just from a pure help desk support, it can be frustrating for users. So I do encourage if uh, budget allows that you have a dedicated local resource in terms of of that help desk support role. The other thing I would recommend is making sure, as as we talked about earlier, is that you've shored up your infrastructure for how it connects to the outside world. I find that employees, especially in leadership, will yell louder when their email is down, not necessarily the system that's running the business. And that, of course, requires a very consistent, a very strong, redundant outside connection. Also be mindful of your security protections. I think Don't go down the ROI path of uh, why you're investing in security solutions. I'm not saying rush out and invest in the Gartner Quadrant because that not necessarily might not be the best fit for your organization, but it's just the cost of doing business because I can assure you if there is a breach or you are that next ransomware attack, all that investment headbanging you may have done in the past certainly seems uh, silly. Yeah. It's one of those things where at this point you just need to if, if you're an organization and you haven't done it already, bite the bullet because if you don't, more and more mid-market companies and even SMBs are being attacked. I mean, it's bad out there. It is. You know, and, and the other thing I would challenge folks is to, or embrace, I should say, IT has traditionally just been a support function, kind of like uh, finance or HR But I don't look at it that way. IT, we're business enablers. And to partner with everybody in your business is just critical for your success as a leader. And that means operations. That means marketing. That means folks in shipping. Get in the trenches. It's not, of course, we're going to still be that first stop when my keyboard doesn't work, the internet's down. That's here to stay. And and we're happy to embrace it. But you want to be thinking strategically and and look at yourselves as a business enabler and a partner of the business, not just a support function. And then the last thing I would say that served me well, and it's still a practice I use today, is when I'm interviewing for my team, having a happy hour or dinner outside of in a social setting is a requirement. I don't care if you're the most highly technical, highly skilled, highly knowledgeable person. If you're not relatable, if you're not empathetic, and you're not team-oriented, I have no interest in you and would rather spend my time with someone greener, but has those personality traits that you just can't teach in the classroom. Yeah, I like that. I think it's huge. I mean, to have someone on your team that can really meld with everyone and become a team player and is in alignment with your values, all of that. I also liked what you said about the local resources. It reminds me that as we're designing customer experience, and I like Andy Ladato always says this, how like, it's not user. Users is like, what does he say? He's like, users are the only people who says users are like drug dealers and, and someone else. <laughs> they're like our customers, right? That's our, right. Our, customers. Our, our business partners. That's right. How do we make the 
experience, highly personalized and radically convenient. And to do that oftentimes requires local resources and or it also requires certain integrations. How, how can we continue to, to improve that experience? And that's what it kind of got me thinking about. So it's good, good yeah. best practice. Yeah, and I like FaceTime. I want my team knowing the first names of folks in the organization. If you have to walk a thousand feet to get to someone in the facility that needs a problem, I want you to walk another thousand feet the following week to make sure that that person is okay. And is there anything else that you can do to help? And how busy we are does get in the way, but you need to purposefully carve out time for FaceTime. It pays dividends and it can't just be for a short period of time because you lose the genuine purpose of it. They need to feel it. How about the some of the most innovative technologies that you're working on right now or that are on the roadmap for, for the next couple of years that you're really excited about? I'm super excited for 3D printing, and that's being led by our design engineering team. But wow, is this cool technology because we have catalog offering of products, 50,000 plus SKUs, but we do a lot of custom work. And vision I have is we should be able to take a concept and turn it around to a prototype that the customer is using in 24 hours. We're a long ways away from that. We're doing better. 3D printing is helping us get there, but it's certainly going to be a key to achieving that vision because let's give you an example of some cool things that 3D printing is doing for us. So we use, we have design software that we use internally and it has the digital representation of the product and all the specs. And there's in some of these printers, it'll take that design and immediately apply it to printing out this concept part that night. Now, 3D printing is still slower than I, it's not as fast as I'd want it to be. So usually you have to come in the next day to see the part and then send it out to the customer. But I just see that as it's just a matter of time. But in our traditional presses, when we're punching out product injection molding, some of them are very thick walled and require extensive cool down time. And with 3D printing, you can create these coils to allow fluid to go in and hug the mold to accelerate that cool down process. And that's just something you couldn't do with traditional tooling methods, but 3D right. printing just opens the door to unique ideas and unique concepts for things like that. So I find that to be very exciting. And AI, like we're in the Microsoft world, Cortana intelligence is very appealing to me. I don't know what that means yet, putting it to good use. So I'm going to look to the outside experts to help shape what we can leverage that for. I mean, I get the marketing material, I get the, the taglines with it, but practical use case, that's not going to cost us a gazillion dollars. I haven't found that yet. I know it's there and I look forward to that day. Very cool. So a couple last questions here as we wrap up. So in your sector of the industrial industry, any other, I mean, we talked on some of the changes, but any other big changes you think that we'll see as time will pass or some of the biggest opportunities for companies like Cap Plugs or Protective Industries in the future? Well, I think, so I think, you know, 3D printing, we talked about right. that. I do see that as, as something you want to definitely stay in tune to and play a part in our future. I think where injection molding is, is our largest process we use. And that's plastics. In some 
sectors, that's not a very appealing material. So biodegradable and other additives that we can still use to craft parts that satisfy customer demand and can hold up to the rigors and environments that we make these products for, but that also can 100% biodegrade and at the dump, man, I do see that as uh, something that's going to be fully realized in the not too distant future. We're partnering with local universities and companies and testing in that area, in the biodegradable area. I, I see a lot of promise there. That's very cool. I'm glad to hear that. So Anthony, our final question we like to ask, if you could go back five, 10 years in time, what advice would you give your younger self? Ah, my younger self. I'm going to say, trust your gut, listen to your peers. I think about projects and even employees that, that have clung on to too long. So there's that, that fear of failure that it's tied to. Really, if I, if I look at myself today versus 10 years ago, those windows would be shortened. I don't want to be that knee-jerk guy, but I certainly could have been, done much better in the past. And that's a benefit not only to the employee that, that may have been steered wrong or just a great person in the wrong industry, having that realization sooner, I think is certainly one thing I would have advised my younger self to be more, more in tune with. That's a great one. Anthony, thank you so much for taking the time. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on. Thank you. I enjoyed this. Appreciate it. Yeah. To all our listeners, thanks for tuning in to Disruptive Innovators, Champions of Digital Business podcast, and we will catch up with you all next week. Thank you for listening to the Disruptive Innovators, Champions of Digital Business podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review and subscribe to enjoy future episodes. This episode is brought to you by Disruptive Innovations, a leading tech consulting firm that helps enterprise organizations with their IT strategy, process optimization, and workflow improvement. Contact them and find out more at disruptiveinnovations.net.